The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Ruth is the eighth book of the Old Testament. Again, it's on page 224. <clears throat> then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malone. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malone, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elder said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, and nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. The word of the Lord. I realize that was probably maybe not the text you were hoping would be read uh, when you came to church this morning. But uh, we're going to trust that this is God's word and he has something for us in it. Let's pray. Our Father, um, we believe your promise that all scripture is inspired by God. And so uh, as we come to finish the book of Ruth this morning and look at these names and these ideas that maybe are strange or obscure to us, we pray that the Holy Spirit would just open up everything you're doing throughout history and um, its call on us, its claim on us, and how we fit into it. So please help us, Lord, please help me to teach this faithfully and clearly, and we pray, as always, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would come and preach the better message, the one that hits each one of us as we need to hear it in our minds and our hearts. So please do this for us, we pray, for your glory. Amen. Amen. So um, if you're new with this, uh, just to catch you up as to why we read that text this morning, we're finishing preaching through the book of Ruth. We've gone through the whole book, and... Just as a norm, that's how we tend to preach here at Fountain of Life, um, and that's a really good thing, we think, because it forces you to see and work with and understand everything that's in the Bible, not just the easy stuff or the, the clear stuff, the stuff we really like, but it helps us wrestle with, well, what's this stuff that seems more difficult? What does it mean that's good for us to see that, wrestle with it? So we're finishing Ruth today, and just, just so you know, uh, next week, we're going to start a four-part series on our mission here at Fountain of Life, and then after that, we're going to start a study through the book of Hebrews, which I'm really excited about. So hope you can be here for that. But today, we're finishing Ruth. Uh, if you've been with us, we've seen, right? It's this wonderful story of redemption. I feel like I ought to do just a, a quick review in case you're jumping in at the end of the conversation. In chapter one, you, re you meet a woman named Naomi, right? And uh, she wants to change her name. Anybody remember what she changed her name to? Call me Mara, and what does Mara mean? Bitter. Bitter. Naomi's, Naomi's life was bitter. Her family had left Israel during a famine for the fields of Moab. And what seemed like the right practical decision horribly backfired. Naomi's husband died. Her two sons 
died and she was left with nothing. And she says, call me bitter. God is against me. And, you know, we can appreciate this book, can't we? Does your life ever feel bitter? Do you ever wonder if God's against you? It's not abnormal. It's in, it's in God's word here. So she's left uh, with nothing uh, except her loyal daughter-in-law who experiences this amazing conversion and leaves her idols in Moab to go with Ruth back to Israel. Your people will be my people, your God, my God, no matter what to the end. It's beautiful conversion. And so then as the story progresses, Ruth, this Moabitess, shows incredible steadfast love. Anybody remember that Hebrew word, hesed, okay? Ruth shows incredible steadfast love to Naomi, continually, repeatedly, and that changes Naomi's whole perspective on things as she is so loved and served by Ruth. And, and not only does Ruth show incredible love to Naomi, God shows his incredible love for these ladies in providing for them a redeemer in this man named Boaz. Now, that's something else we got to unpack. What is a redeemer? If you remember... Um, Redeemer was a role God gave his people in the Old Testament to teach them about their relationship with him. So in the Old Testament, a redeemer would be a prominent member of your family or tribal clan who could rescue you in trouble. So say you lost your land to debt, the redeemer could buy it back and restore you to the land. Say you lost yourself to slavery due to trouble, the redeemer could buy you back and set you free. Even if you lost your family line, which was huge, in the Old Testament, the, the Redeemer could even take the widowed wife of his relative, give her children so that his relative's name would continue in the land. So the, the Redeemer rescues, buy, buys back, saves from trouble at cost to himself, and all of this to show you that God ultimately is the Redeemer of his people. Well, anyway, at, at this point in Ruth chapter 4, if it was a movie, they're all riding into the sunset on their donkey or something. It's all worked out against all odds. Naomi and, and Ruth, who had nothing, now they're provided for. Who were, they were empty, now they're full. They were hopeless. Now, they, now they're secure. It's amazing. And then we as modern readers go, why didn't you put, and they lived happily ever after, like right after verse 8, you know? Instead, what's the Hebrew narrator want to give you? The best way he's thinking to end this story, let's roll some genealogies. I'm feeling like it's time for a genealogy. Now, how many of you, you're like, I'm going to read the Bible, and you open that thing up, and you did all right for a while, and then you came to a genealogy. And it feels like a genealogy is the place where Bible reading plans go to die, a genealogy. And so we're like, bro, take a, take a how to write a narrative class. You wrote this incredible story, and now you're dumping us with two genealogies. And the narrator would say, oh, you don't understand. You don't understand. And, you know, I, I would say, having studied this, let me surprise you by telling you that these genealogies are actually the most important part of the entire story. They're the most important part of the entire story. This genealogy, in fact, is the reason that the book of Ruth isn't just a nice story. If you, if you read the story without the genealogies, it'd be like you read a nice novel, and you're like, oh, that was sweet, but eh. But no, this gene, the, these genealogies, they, they do something. And, and these genealogies are the reason this book actually has a claim on us, something to stay to us, and it's actually an invitation to us today. Wow. Well, why do I say that? Before I answer, uh, answer that question... I actually want to take a quick look with you at a New Testament text that's so helpful and important for knowing how to interpret the Old Testament, because that's a struggle, right? How many of you, you've read some Old Testament texts, and you think, I have no idea what to do with this. I don't like what this is saying, or I don't understand, understand what this is saying. Uh, number one, that happens to everyone who reads the Bible, and that's okay. Number two, let's talk. Let's talk, let's, let's dig, let's understand, let's, let's see in context what it's saying and how it fits into the whole Bible. And, and this morning, I just want to give you one little piece in the New Testament that really helps Christians interpret the Old Testament. So look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now just in context, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote this to a young pastor who was working with him. In the beginning of, the, of chapter 3, 
Paul lets Timothy know that as a general trend, he says, in the last days, people are going to want to invent what they believe about God, not receive it. Did you hear that? People are going to want to invent what they believe about God, not receive it. I, you know, I have to pause here just as a modern American. How do you feel about that? Some of you might be saying, well, of course we invent what we believe about God. Right? You would only believe in a God where you like everything about him and you like everything he does. Right? Why would you believe in a God that would ever disagree with you? And then, and then you just raise the question, do you have any relationships where the other person never disagrees with you? Of course not. Of course not. And the more intimate of a relationship, the more you're going to run into, we don't agree with each other. And that's part of how you know you're not just talking to you. You're actually talking to someone else. Do you think the holy creator God is just limited to your preferences or desires? I mean, when you ask it like that, it seems ridiculous, doesn't it? And so Paul's going to say in the last days, people are going to want to invent what they believe about God rather than receive it. People are going to want to self-create, be their own authorities on spirituality, morality. And then when you hear that, you think, don't you think, yep, that's our times, guilty. So look, now Paul says, as we get to 2 Timothy 3.14, Timothy, we're different. Christians are different. Christian leaders are different. 2 Timothy 3.14, this is what Paul says. As for you, continue in what you have learned, what have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, excuse me, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So in context, Paul's talking about the Old Testament, of course, because the New Testament's still being written, but, but it fits for the entire Bible. Okay, the sacred writings are holy, they're set apart. And then look what he says in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's a huge claim, isn't it? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man or woman, he's talking to Timothy, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's just such an epic claim, but two things I want to highlight. Number one, the entire Bible is inspired by God. That is, that's Christianity 101, and without that, there is no Christianity. The entire Bible is inspired by God, which means every time you read the Bible, there's two authors. One is a legitimate, actual human author in a human context writing to a human audience with desires and thoughts and intentions, and we want to know what his original intention is. And there's a second author. The Holy Spirit of God is superseding, inspiring, directing what that human author is writing so that, uh, rightly understood, the writing of the human author is the word of God. And that's true of all scripture. All scripture is inspired by God. And so it's just a good reminder for us. You want to know what God is like, what we're like, God's design for our lives, what life is for, meaning, purpose, all the rest? We don't invent it. We receive it. We receive it. And we receive it in God's word. That's going to be very different from what your cultural moment is telling you. But Paul said something else you may not have noticed, and I want you to look back at verse 15. The sacred writings, and Paul is, of course, thinking of the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation. Now, a lot of times we would stop there. Well, if the Old Testament's inspired by God, it's able to make you wise for salvation, right? Of course. But but look at the next phrase. It's incredible. It's able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Does that mess with you at all? Because guess who's not explicitly there in the Old Testament? It's a mystery. Guess who's not explicitly there? Jesus Christ. And yet, in order to rightly interpret the Old Testament now, now that Christ has come, you have to read it through the lens of the reality of Jesus Christ. So let me, let me put it like this. Christ, is that Jesus' last name? Jesus Christ. No, that's a title. What does a title mean? It means a lot of things, but part of what it means is the one promised in the Old Testament. 
So there's all these promises about the one who's going to save and what he's going to do and what he's going to be like and how he's going to do it. And then when Jesus comes and is the Christ, the gospel writers are saying, the one promise, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. So here's what you see. You can't understand Jesus without a little bit of the knowledge of the Old Testament, right? You can't understand Jesus without a knowledge of the Old Testament. And for our purposes this morning, you can't rightly interpret the Old Testament without a knowledge of Jesus. We read this passage in the shadow of Christ. I want to show you how this works because that really is what chapter 4 is doing even though it doesn't fully know it yet. Okay? So, we're just going to dive into Ruth chapter 4 here. Verses 9 to 10, we have that read just to catch up on a little bit of context from last week. Boaz has redeemed Ruth and Naomi. If you want to catch up what we said about that, all those sermons are online. You can listen to that on the website. But these ladies out of the most hopeless of situations have been redeemed. And now you see three responses in the rest of chapter 4. So in chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, the witnesses at the gate respond to this great story of Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi. In verses 13 to 17, the women of the community respond to this great story of Boaz redeeming Ruth and Naomi. And in verses 18 to 22, the narrator of the story concludes in response to this great story of Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi. Do you see? Each group is responding. And they each respond with a different perspective. So I want to show you the first response considers this story, this amazing story, Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi, considers the story in the light of God's work in the past. They look to God's work in the past. The second response, the women of the community, they consider the story in light of what God's doing in the present. And the third response, verses 18 to 22, the narrator of the story uses a genealogy to tell you what God is going to do in the future. And so the story just explodes with redemption, and the witnesses look at redemption past. The women look at redemption present, and the narrator looks at redemption future. And so we want to see what they're seeing, see what it means, and see what it says to us today, okay? So here we go. Are you with me? We're going to slog through genealogies. Okay. Number one, redemption past. So we're going to start in verse 11. The people who were at the gate and the elders say, we're witnesses. We're witnesses. Bo, uh, Naomi and Ruth have been redeemed. That's awesome. And then they start to pray for this family. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. How do, you, how do you feel about that? Have you ever prayed that for someone? Probably not. And, and you don't need to. But what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, as you read through these, this list of names, 11 to 12, where are they all coming from? Anybody know? Where are all these stories coming from? They're all coming from the book of Genesis. The, the story of beginnings. It's, it's all tying into God's storyline. So we want to back up and remember the storyline of the Bible here. How does Genesis chapter 1 start? There's a, whole, a good and holy God who's outside of his creation. In the beginning, God. That's, that's so huge and fundamental. There's a transcendent God who creates, and therefore he's Lord and authority. If you believe that, that just that sets you on a different road on, on what you think about things and how you live. There's a transcendent God, and he creates everything by what? By the power of his word. He speaks it all into life. It's majestic. And over and over again, the text tells us it's good. It's good. It's good. And the best part of his creation, Adam and Eve, male and female, human beings made in the image of God to together be satisfied him and represent him on the earth. It's beautiful. It's good. It's our design. And yet what happens very quickly in Genesis 3? What's the problem? The whole story of the Bible is trying to answer it's this problem in Genesis 3, it's the fall. You have creation, then the fall. 
Adam and Eve believed the lie, that three-part lie. And we say this a lot here at Fountain of Life because it's every time we sin, we're believing the three-part lie. Number one, God's not good. Why do we have to sing, satisfy us? Because in my flesh, in my sin, I'm not naturally satisfied with the most satisfying thing there could be. God himself. The first part of that lie, God's not good. Second part of that lie, his word's not true. Don't believe it. Don't receive what you believe about God. Invent. First part of the lie, God's not good. Second part of the lie, his word's not true. Third part of the lie, if you buy the first part, the, th- the first and second part, the third part's inevitable. If God's not good and his word's not true, you'll replace him with something else. Could be you, could be something your culture's giving you, could be romance, could be money, could be, it could be anything. In, in the story of human beings, it is everything except God. So they fall. And what does that bring? It brings death of every kind. Relational death, psychological death, physical death, moral death, spiritual death. We love the wrong things. We do the wrong things. We deserve the just wrath of God. Do you believe that's the true story of the world? There's a transcendent God who is good. And we have dignity made in his image as human beings, but we've fallen. Do you think that explains the world? Can you read the news and go, you know what? I think everyone's good. Really? We're broken, man. We're evil. Uh, but we have dignity and value and purpose. And humans are incredibly wonderful. They're made in the image of God. And they're fallen. So you have creation, you have the fall. And then you have, in his grace, God's promise to redeem He's going to redeem sinners back to himself, and it's going to be by grace. That's really important for reading Genesis. What's grace? Anybody know what grace means? It's lavish love, but there's a key key ingredient you have to have in that definition, and it's undeserved. It's undeserved. And so some of you, when you come into church, you're feeling like that. I don't deserve God's love. And that's such a compelling thought because it's true. But then we remember grace means undeserved love. That's the sweetness of it. It's love poured out that you don't deserve, that you receive anyway. God's going to save by grace. And then surprisingly, he says he's going to do it through the one who will come from Abraham's family. (laughs) That's how God's going to save the world. The one who will come from Abraham's family. So God, God brings Abraham. Did he, did he pick Abraham? Because Abraham was always good, smart, moral. Anybody believes that? Did you read Genesis, right? No. He's gonna, he saves him by grace and then through faith. The vehicle for, through which fa- grace saves us is through faith. Abraham believed God and counted him as righteous. He received what God said and he trusted it. Saved by grace through faith. And that take, you're like, why are you talking about this? Wait, who did they pray that Ruth would be like? Rachel and Leah. And who are Rachel and Leah? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And who are Jacob's two wives? Rachel and Leah. And already you're like, two wives? And I'm saying, I know. And it's not God's design. Look at Genesis 2. One man, one woman, forever. That's, that's for life. That's, that's God's design. Read what Jesus said in Matthew 19. Now, polygamy is not God's design, but we're fallen, and polygamy is part of that fallenness. And if you read the narratives, you see how ugly it is and how disturbing it is and how awful it is. And yet God is saving people by what? Grace, even in the midst of the mess. And Rachel and Leah build up the house of Israel. Because where did the 12 tribes come from? The 12 boys, right? Now, I'm summarizing a lot here, but so is the narrator, so we can do that. What's Jacob like? Did God choose Jacob because he's just like, he's, you know, he's varsity spiritual, moral, kind, courageous, honest, full of integrity? No, no. And yet God in his grace begins to transform Jacob's life, he leaves home empty. He comes back full because God protected, provide, because God's, God redeems. And so do you see these witnesses looking back to God's story of what God has done already and how God redeems by grace? And then they're saying, 
to Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, may you be part of that story. May that, cons- may that story continue in you. Then they say, may your house be like the house of Perez, the son. Oh, man, the house of Perez. Are, are anyone familiar with him? Okay. This leads us to one of the most grisly stories in the Bible. And I won't even go into the details. Um, Perez was the son of Judah and Tamar. And Tamar was originally one of Judah's daughter-in-laws. Yeah. What do you know about Judah? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Judah was one of Jacob's sons, Abraham's great-grandson. Read Genesis and you will find that when you meet Judah, he is a wretched, wretched man. He is selfish and he is wicked. There is nothing to like about him. Um, But God broke into Judah's heart through this encounter with Tamar and it changed his life. Long story short, Tamar ends up being the mother of Judah's child. And that's surprising. Why? Where's she from? She's a Canaanite. And from an Israelite Old Testament point of view, what do you believe about Canaanites? They're nasty. They're wretched. They're everything wrong with the world. What is a Canaanite doing in God's line, Abraham's family? Well, you can ask the question, what's Judah doing in this line? God saves sinners because he saves by grace, and it's for all the nations. We're learning this already. So Judah, again, he slowly transforms, which is why I love this name so much. He slowly transformed, and he becomes one who's willing to give up his life for the salvation of others. He completely transforms in the story because God's grace changed him. Then seemingly out of nowhere, we find this blessing from God to Judah in Genesis 49. Look at this. Genesis 49. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Who holds scepters? Kings. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So just out of nowhere, Judah receives this promise that one in his lineage will reign over all the nations. And in the context of where they're at in the story, you're thinking, how is that possible? And you don't know. It's a mystery, but a king will come. Anyway, Perez, the son of Tamar, through Judah, he's built up and becomes a house. And you see how it worked? Perez is the great, 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 however many greats, grandfather of our man Boaz. Boaz, this worthy Israelite man, he's got Canaanite blood. So interesting. And so Boaz is an infinitely better man than Judah, and Ruth outshines most women. But the story gives these witnesses a familiar ring. Do you see how unexpectedly this happened? Ruth, a Moabitess, comes into our community and shows more character and more grace than we could ever imagine. And she's been redeemed. And she's part of this family line now. She's part of our clan. Wow, God redeems. God redeems. You wouldn't expect this, but this is what God is doing. God redeems. Remember that God redeems. And you know, it's easy to forget Do you ever forget that God redeems even in the midst of bitterness? Do you think sometimes God's fallen asleep on your life? Are you screwed up too many times? It's just, it's over. Psalm 77 is like that. I encourage you to read that today. In the beginning of Psalm 77, the author's like, I'm giving up. It's too hard. I don't don't know about this. He actually asked something like, have you quit? Has Has your steadfast love ceased? He asked God that in the psalm. Praise God for psalms like that. We feel that way sometimes. Has your steadfast love ceased? But everything changes for the author when he remembers how God redeems in the past. Look at Psalm 77, 11. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work. I will meditate on your mighty deeds. Verse 13, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You're the God who works wonders. You've made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm, what? Redeemed your people. 
They're looking to redemption past and a God who loves to redeem his people and he redeems his people by grace. There's a lot of stuff going on in this genealogy, huh? Now let's look at the second section. The blessing of the woman of the city celebrates that God is redeeming now. So you see this from, it's, it's now for them, right? 13 to 17, they're just celebrating with Naomi. Her story started with bitterness. Remember, her husband's name was Elimelech. And what does Elimelech mean? God is king. And then Elimelech dies, which raises the question, is God a very good king? It's kind of the question of chapter one. Is, is God a very good king? Can I trust this God? And Naomi actually says explicitly, God's against me. And, and, and so she felt her life was bitter and God was beating her up. She messed it up. God seems like a, a distant enemy. And if you, if you feel that way, if you felt that way, remember, Naomi couldn't see what God was doing already around her. Even in the midst of the bitterness, he was redeeming. Ruth had that incredible conversion. And God's redemption of Ruth turned into Ruth showing great love to Naomi. And you, you see here in uh, Ruth 4.15, the, the, the ladies of the city say to Naomi, your daughter Ruth is more to you than seven sons. Does that replace Naomi's sons that she lost? No, it doesn't. But has God brought redemption? Has he filled the emptiness? Has he, has he still worked healing? Has he still worked good? Yes, he has. Moreover, what is now wriggling on her lap? I mean, in her mind, she was an old widow. The, the family line is gone, and now she's holding her grandson. She's holding her grandson, which in her worldview, that continues even her husband's line and her, her, the ancestry of the family clan. God has filled up what was empty. God has rebuilt things. He's healed things. He's redeemed, and they never thought it was possible. And so they get this blessing, you know, this... They, um, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer. That's in verse 14. God redeems now and they're celebrating it. And then, uh, then we see what happened in verse 17. It's actually really interesting. It's the only time, I think, um, where the people of the neighborhood name somebody else's kid. Which, you know, I don't recommend that. You're going to name that kid that? Don't do that, okay? Let people name their kids. But here, they name, they name uh, this child. They, they say a son has born to Naomi, and she's a major caregiver. And that's why it's going to be, that's because through him, the family line will continue. But they, did you see what they named him? Obed. I know you all were in your Hebrew. Uh, Hebrew what does Obed mean? Um, it means servant. It means servant. One who's going to be able to fill the need with his life and with his deeds. He's a servant. Because see, Naomi was hopeless as an elderly widow, but now that she and her family have been redeemed, she'll be cared for financially, she'll be cared for with food and provision, and she'll also have a future because this young man, Obed, will be the one who takes care of her in her old age. She's been redeemed. Praise God. Praise God. So they're they answer the question, is God king? Is God a good king? In chapter one, Naomi's not sure. In chapter four, what's the answer? He is. He's king and he's a good king. In fact, he's even done good things through the bitterness. Naomi may have stayed in Moab without those hard times. She may not have come back to the worship of the real God. He's worked through the bitterness. He, he saved Ruth through this story. He's, he's done good things even in the hard times. He's king, and he's a good king. And so we're supposed to think here today, thousands of years later, we're here, we're here to ask, is God redeeming in your life today? Is he aware of you? Does he know your story? Is he active in your story? Does he care? If you're like me, you're tempted to think, well, I'm a nobody and an idiot. Why would God pay attention to me? Those people made it into the Bible, you know. But don't you see, that's the point of the book of Ruth. It's not full of fireworks. There's not prophets and dreams and battles and visions. It's normal people 
with difficult circumstances and some regret and hard choices and uncertainty about how things are going to work and suffering and hopelessness and wondering. It's right there for them. God's active and he's redeeming because God always redeems his people. He's always working in his people's lives. Don't we have verses like this that call us to believe that in the New Testament? Look at Romans 8, 28. You've heard this before, but it's just, we don't, we've heard it, but we don't believe it, right? And we know. I'm glad he didn't use we hope. And we hope. No, we know. What do we know? That for those who love God, okay, if you put, if you put your trust in him, for those who love God, all things work together for good. It doesn't say all things are good. Christians can't talk like that. There's evil, there's injustice, there's mistakes. All things aren't good. But God is such a good, good king, he can work together all things, even terrible things, even regrets. He can work those together for good. In fact, he promises that if you're in Christ, he will. He's redeeming. For those who are called according to his purpose. Or here's another one. It's painful, but you need it. Look at James 1, verse 2. This one's hard for us. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's one of those verses where you're thinking, trials are the opposite of joy. I don't like trials. Count it all joy. Why? Why? Because God's working for things that are so good that it's worth the trials. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God is building you up in him. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Why, does it, why is there a command to let it have its effect? I think it's because there's a grain you can go with or a flow, if you will, on what God is doing in your life. And you can push against it or you can lean into it. You can, you can rage against him and run against him and push against him. Keep trying. The current of the Lord is strong. <laughs> or you can swim into it and say, Jesus, where are you taking me? And seek him and learn. Let it have its effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's the same idea that we read from 2 Timothy. The word of God is profitable to change your life, and God is going to apply that word in your life so often through trials. He's redeeming now. So just ask yourself, pray, pray. Ask God to show you what is God up to even in, in the, what is he up to in your life, in the bitterness of your times, your life, your regret? How is he going to redeem? So we've seen God has promised to redeem in the past. We look to redemption past. We see that God is redeeming now. Now this third part, God will redeem. And he will do so through his king. You look at 17 to 22. I am not going to go through each of these people. But in verses 17 and verses 22, you see the same thing repeated. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Do you see that? And it's in there twice. So we should pay attention, okay? So we remember from back in the beginning of the book of Ruth, we were told that Ruth took place in the time of the judges. It's like 400-something years of Israel being absolutely awful. You read the book of Judges, and it's, it's, it's appalling. It's corrupt. It's dangerous. And look at how the book of Judges ends. It's right before Ruth. Judges 21-25. In those days, what was the problem? There's no king in Israel. And so with no king, what did everybody do? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We need a certain kind of king. And then when you see at the end of the book of Ruth, twice, Obed's the father of Jesse, who's the father of David. Who's the king we need? It's David. And he's coming. He's coming. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you read First, uh, Second Samuel, David was far from perfect. That's putting it kindly. 
He's far from perfect, but he had many, many good qualities. He ruled, generally speaking, especially the beginning of, his, beginning of his reign, with righteousness. And when he sinned, he repented. He turned to the Lord and the Lord, of lo- Lord alone, and he stood out for this among all the other kings. For him, there were no other gods. It was the Lord and the Lord, of, uh, the Lord alone. And in David's life, he redeemed Israel in two ways. Number one, he kind of bought them back from an awful king who had no love for God and was wreckage on the country, Saul. He established wholehearted worship of the Lord in that way. And second, David redeemed God's people from the oppression of their enemies, the Philistines. Remember, due to David's trust in God and his love for God's glory, he won the battle that no one else could win. So David comes and and redeems the people in a way as God's promised king. And then, just like we saw in Genesis 49 with Judah, David receives an incredible promise. This is one of the most important verses for understanding the Bible. Look at 2 Samuel 7, 11. So David wants to build a temple for the Lord, and the Lord, through his prophet, says this to David. 2 Samuel 7, 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What did you just hear? David's kingdom's going to reign forever, and it's going to be through his son. As you read through the Old Testament story, that comes true in two ways, right? Who's his son that builds the temple, literally? Solomon, and he builds the temple. does. It's the high point of Israel. And yet, what happens very quickly after that? It's like a replay of Adam and Eve in the garden. By the lie, God's not good. His word's not true. Let's replace him. Solomon worships idols, and it's just downhill from there. And we fall apart. By the time you get to the prophets, um, it looks hopeless, and yet there's these promises. The king's going to come. The king's going to come. We've been looking at those over the last few weeks. The king's going to come. And then finally, hundreds of years later, you get to about the first century A.D., And, and Bethlehem and its area is under the rule of the Roman Empire. And times are bitter. And you can imagine the people thinking, is God really king? Is he a good king? Is he really going to come? And it's in that context that one of my favorite books ever was written, the Gospel of Matthew. And, and just the way Ruth ends, guess how Matthew starts? Hmm, how should I start my gospel? What do you think? A genealogy, of course. Look at what he says, Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And what does he call him? The son of David, the son of Abraham. That is lineage. He is, a, is, a, he is in the line of Abraham and David, but it's so much more than lineage. It's fulfillment. All of God's promises that he would save his people by grace through faith, his promises to Abraham, they're fulfilled In Jesus Christ. All of God's promises that one day a king would come who reigns with righteousness and truth and mercy and he'll reign over all the peoples of the earth. It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I'll just share some of this genealogy with you. Look at Matthew 1, 2 to 3. We'll see familiar names. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez. And Zerah by Tamar, we've heard that. Now look at Matthew 1, 5. Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. We don't have time to go into that. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And on and on you go, and down in verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Have you ever been amazed that in the line of the Jewish king of all kings is Canaanite and Moabite blood? That our mothers in the faith, in the story of redemption, Tamar and Ruth, and that says something. What does it say? Jesus is the one who truly has come to redeem 
All of this is pointing to him, and it shows that he comes to save sinners, and that he saves by grace through faith, and that he saves people of all nations, that he invites you to come to him and have him as your redeemer. Moreover, what was Obed's name? Servant. What did Boaz do? He's the redeemer. And Jesus is the ultimate Obed and the ultimate Boaz. He's the servant who redeems. Look at Mark 10, 45. For even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus served you on the cross. And how did he serve you? Remember the biblical storyline. It's not just Adam and Eve who bought the lie. You've bought the lie. God's not good. His word is not true. And he is to be replaced. I've bought that lie. And I've lived that out millions of times. And because God is just and holy, I deserve his just wrath. But I'm not only under the penalty of sin, I'm under the power of sin. Do you know this still? Do you have desires in your life and you're like, that's wrong, it's not good, and I still want it? Anybody? And if, and if you're like, no, I never have that, I just, I don't get you. I don't think you're looking at yourself very much. I mean, the penalty of sin and the power of sin, and we, we cannot save ourselves. You cannot make yourself good enough to be right with a holy God. Do you know that? I mean, the one thing I want anyone who ever comes to my church to know this, know the hopelessness of you being a good person on your own before a holy God. And I ask this question, do you even keep your own moral law? Have you not been angry and outraged by others who do the same things that you have done? You wouldn't even be righteous by your own standard. And then to put on a holy God's standard, to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, every time and in every way according to his word, to love your neighbor as yourself every time according to his word, to not invent who he is or morality or who you are, but to receive it in his word. We all, gosh, we all, haven't we, have sinned and we cannot save ourselves. But here comes the great, 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 great grandson of Judah, of Tamar, of Ruth, who came to serve. And he serves you by living the perfect life you could never live. He did it. He did it. He loved God. He loved his neighbor. He did it. And if you will trust yourself to him, he will give his perfection to you so that in the eyes of the holy God for all who trust Christ, he will count you righteous, innocent. He'll forgive you of all your sins. Moreover, it was on that cross that he bought you. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom. If you will trust in him, you can know Jesus has bought you to himself. And at the price of his own blood, he has made it so that he will be your redeemer. Which means you're under his wings, his care, his love that his strength and his power and his salvation are fully and totally for you. And that all that he brings when he returns, a new heaven and a new earth, his kingdom, fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, it's all yours through what Jesus Christ has done. Do you see what Ruth, this book, is pushing you to? Hundreds and hundreds of years ago. If you read it right, if you see redemption past, redemption present, redemption future through the king, Ruth says to you, do you believe the true storyline of the world? Will you receive what to believe about God and yourself or are you gonna invent it?
And if you'll receive it, do you see how you need the Redeemer? You need someone who can buy you out of the penalty and power of your sin, earn your forgiveness, change your heart so that you can grow to love God and his ways. You need it. And then Jesus, Ruth says, the book of Ruth says what Jesus says explicitly, come, repent and believe the gospel. Come, receive what I've done. Come, believe in Christ as your redeemer. Hope in him. He will redeem you. He will redeem you. He lived the perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. He reigns now. He's accomplishing his work in his people by his Holy Spirit, and he will finish the work when he returns. We will be redeemed. Well, this genealogy uh, that at first maybe seemed meaningless is anything but. And it's calling us to Christ. It's calling us to remember that God's story is a real one. And that as we receive God's word by faith, especially the promise of the gospel, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We come and we say, Jesus, be my redeemer. And as we saw last week, this is what Jesus says to everyone who comes to him. I will redeem you. I will redeem you. God redeems his people through his king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for how all of history is drawn up to point to you, how all the word points to you and is fulfilled in you. And as we, as we ponder these old promises from ancient times, we, we see how they're aiming us at you and who you are and what you've done. And we just pray that the Holy Spirit would complete that work in our minds and our hearts today, that we would be drawn to again trust Jesus Christ, lean on him, rely on him, to be our redeemer. So Lord, I pray for those who walked in the door, perhaps not Christians, that you would reveal yourself to them today. They would trust you, give their lives to you, seek you. Lord, I pray for those who are in bitter times thinking you're distant, you're not a good king, that we could remember you're patient and you're working and we would look to trust you again. We'd remember what you've done in the past and believe that you're still working today. And Lord, we just pray that we could continue to draw near in celebrating you, trusting you as our redeemer, to live faithfully for you, full of love for you, love for our neighbor, for your glory. And we look forward to the day, Lord Jesus, as you say, that we can lift up our heads for our redemption is near. You're gonna return for us. We thank you for these great promises. We pray that you'd write them on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.